This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is podcast episode 96, and I'm here to offend you. Maybe, maybe not, hopefully not. Hopefully, talking about what kind of flies I use or what other people use isn't offensive. I'm not talking about taking a weighted treble hook and pulling it through a pool of native brook trout. I'm talking about using flies that have materials and tying techniques that are modern, that are a little bit different, but that are productive. And I think, here's a spoiler, I think that's why they're so uh, controversial. It's because they work. If people were fishing with ugly, silly non-fly flies and they didn't catch any fish nobody would bat an eye no internet message boards would be a twitter and no fly shop conversations would get heated the fact of the matter is squirmy wormies and mop flies and other weird little patterns catch fish and so people who don't want to use those flies can get their hackles up now might there be reason for that maybe but Let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. So I want to talk about some trashy flies. And I I am willing to embrace that. But I also want to put the caveat out there. I don't fish a lot of these patterns. Now, I don't have any moral opposition to them. I have fished them from time to time. And I, I will touch on that. I'll mention kind of the techniques that I do use when I, I do fish these patterns. But it's just not what I like to fish. I like to fish more traditional patterns. But I think what I, I want to kind of start the conversation out with is why these patterns have gotten a bad reputation. I've already touched on that a little bit. Maybe why people put some flies in this category and other flies not in this trashy fly category. And uh, then again, some of those patterns that kind of have a bad reputation that are a little notorious and how you can fish them if you so choose. And then maybe a little bit 
of a word on uh, how to, you know, have a an angling agnostic approach would be, you know, that works for you, this works for me, and, and we're okay. So the very first thing is what makes some of these flies considered trashy or cheap or cheating or whatever? And it's because of the materials that are being used. It's not your traditional chicken feather hackle and rodent or mammal dubbing body and you know that kind of materials it is the end of a mop or it is the little dangly piece that comes off of a rubber child's toy so these aren't the kind of things that you would have found in a fly shop 20 years ago and i think that's kind of getting to the heart of the the matter these are not the kind of materials that were used 20 years ago and you rewind 20 really more like 25 30 years and the kinds of materials that you would find on the pegboard in the local fly shop were not that dissimilar from the materials that you would have found a hundred years ago. Now, a much wider variety, but looking at them, they would be very, very similar with one major distinction. Actually, two major distinctions. The first one is things are genetically modified in a much quicker manner. Now, genetically modified isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, genetically modified simply means uh, we're taking the desirable traits of this rooster and the desirable traits of this rooster and uh, we're trying to have its progeny breed with the other one's progeny and so we try to get those long thin feathers so that we can sell lots and lots and lots of midge hackles so as technology and breeding and and uh, for, for chickens in particular has has increased then you are seeing different products these days. But the other thing that you're seeing on the shelf, and this was even 25 years ago, is synthetic materials. As, uh, and this is me really talking over my, my pay grade, as extrusion techniques and as material uh, composition became easier to, to access. And a lot of these things, you know, fly fishing is not the uh, first market for a lot of these synthetic materials, these nylons and these plastics and some of these other things. They're being used in other industries and then some fly angler gets a hold of it and says this makes a way better dubbing or this makes a way better body material or, or wing for a saltwater fly and so we're going to start using it and then one of the big fly tying company material companies comes along and then takes this bag of five dollar uh, excess or five dollar waste from some other industry and they bundle it up in a hundred little bags and put those as five dollars each and that's awesome that's great that's more power to you if you can do that and you can sell that i think that's fantastic and phenomenal and you are the better for it and you can probably put it in lots of different colors but you know the the trained angler can figure out what this stuff is um, where you can go and find those little foam uh, pieces or you can make your own little foam pieces and not have to spend that much money but that was the kind of stuff that you were starting to see you know, 20, 25 years ago. These days, uh, there's all manner of weird stuff that's out there, but it's really just a continuation of the GMOs to a certain degree, the genetically modified uh, plants and animals, not plants so much, but animals, and their dyeing techniques and the um, processing that goes into them, and a continuation of those synthetic products 
as well as the introduction of new synthetic products. And as I alluded to, two of the most notorious ones are the little mop fibers, which mops are fine, but if you really want to find good ones, go to the dollar store and get the car washing uh, mitts. That's where it's at because those are a dollar a piece, and uh, they're much smaller and much more compact. That's where I buy my mop capes, um, which uh, a friend of mine coined that term, a mop cape. I like that. And then squirmy, wormy material, little kid's toy. Again, dollar store, or which I do because I'm lazy. I don't feel like uh, you know walking through the dollar store aisle and trying to find the right colors. You know, I buy those from a fly shop, and and those are actually they're they're much more durable when you get them from uh, a fly tying company. So what's the difference between those materials and the synthetic buck hair, for example? So a uh, great example. I am fishing with clouds. I actually caught a striper uh, a few days ago on a fly that I tied back in, I know it, it must have been 2000 because I was working at the fly shop in 2000, and that's when I really started um, uh, tying. It was those, those years, like 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. So 20-year-old fly, and I just tied so many of these flies, and they look as good today as they did the day I tied them because I was using a synthetic bucktail material. And for the salt water, I love it because it doesn't mat up. It has a little bit more shimmer. Totally fine. But what is different between a synthetic fiber that is meant to imitate a uh, bucktail and I use for a clouser minnow, how is that any different than a, a squirmy wormy fiber? Honestly, what's, what's the difference? It's a fake thing. It's not found in nature. And I get it. One looks offensive. One doesn't look like a fly. One you can make the case is the imitation of a fly. But we're not trying to imitate flies. We're trying to imitate foodstuffs that fish are going after. So I get it. I know to you know you, you know it when you see it. I get that argument, and it makes sense. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot of difference than using, say, chenille, than you know using a mop fiber. What's chenille? It is a very processed fiber that is not that different than a mop head. One just happens to be bought in the hardware store, and the other one happens to be bought at a fly shop. And I think that's really a lot of people's hang up. So you think about it. Chenille, it's on so many patterns, so many streamers. I mean, you can't have a woolly bugger. You can dub a woolly bugger, and actually you can do some really cool things by dubbing woolly buggers. But, I mean, I... I wrap the bodies of my woolly buggers with chenille and then with like polar chenille. That's as plastic and fake as it comes. People hardly bat an eye at that. So all this to say, it's really a spectrum. And if you only want to use natural materials, locally sourced, cage-free, vegetarian-fed, you know, cruelty-free birds and mammals to create your flies that are indigenous to the 50 miles in which you live and fish, then that's awesome. What a fun little little job and way to live. I'm sure your hands are going to be filthy from all the dyeing you're going to be doing, and your backyard's going to stink from having to tan all those animal hides. But you know what? If you have the time, go for it. But if you want to tie with rubber and with weird nylon broom heads, then go for it. You're going to also have some struggles because you're going to have to be tying with some materials that are a little bit more difficult to work with. 
but I think we can hopefully agree that there's a spectrum here, that it's not a right and wrong thing, assuming that you're abiding by local regulations. It's not a right and wrong thing. So all that said, and with that caveat I mentioned before, that I don't fish a lot of non-traditional flies. I do fish them from time to time. So I want to talk a little bit about a couple of them and kind of their, their eccentricity and uh, how, how to fish them. So the first one is the worst, but it's in many ways, it's the best. And that's the squirmy wormy. This is a fly I don't like to fish because um, I actually didn't learn to tie a good version of it until very, very recently. I always hated the way that my squirmies uh, turned out. I would tie them and I would just throw them in my boys' fly boxes which is waiting for them to get chewed up and destroyed by, by bluegills. But recently I, I learned about a new way to tie squirmies and I'm actually kind of excited about trying it. And I'll talk about that at the end of the podcast, but this is a pattern that I like using on really fast water, especially on mountain streams where I know that fish are looking up and being opportunistic. And I kind of use it as like an attractor nymph. So I weight my squirmies down, either with a bead or more often than not with some wraps on, on the hook uh, shank. And so I'll throw that thing up above a plunge pool and let that drop down through. And I find I get a lot of takes. The first time I, I noticed this, I was out in Colorado and I was fishing for cutthroat trout and I'd never caught this strain of cutthroat trout before. And so I was really, really wanting to make the most of my half day that I hiked up into the mountains to try to get this, these fish. And they were all, it was a really, really hot day. It was a really hot stretch of days, incredibly hot week in the, in the summer. And I wasn't high up enough that that uh, had been mitigated by, by the altitude. So I was high up, but not that high up. And it was super, super hot. So the fish were laying really deep and my dry flies weren't calling them up and little streamers that were kind of bounced on the bottom and you know the back of pools weren't getting down deep enough because of the 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 speed in which these uh, currents were moving so i turned to the brightest flashiest fly i had in my little high mountain box and that was a small squirmy on probably like a size 14 or 16 hook threw it up in the pool above let it come down over the plunge pool and my first two casts i caught two fish nice plump cutthroat trout and i've used that tactic out east uh, also in, in in the same way so that's kind of how i fish it i haven't fished them a whole lot um as a as a, a traditional nymph um i know that a lot of people do and that's actually how a lot of people catch catch fish but i prefer a fly that's going to get down faster and i think squirmies material uh the the buoyancy it, it just I don't like it. I don't like putting enough weight on that fly to balance it out. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. Are there ways to do it? Yes. And that's also the fly I'll be talking about later. So, squirmy wormies. Next one is mop flies. And here's here's my, my great admission. I, I really don't enjoy fishing these for a lot of the same reasons that I mentioned before. Now, I like fishing them in warm water applications. I think that they make for excellent bluegill and carp flies and they just add a lot of body and they add a lot of chew. And these are, are fish that, this might be my my mind and my observation, there's no science behind it, but I feel like those fish chew a lot more. I know that trout chew flies and chew real food, but you watch a bluegill feed and man, they're just nibble, 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 nibble just nibbling like crazy. The same thing with carp. 
they chew and gum what they're eating. So I think that mop fly material, it, it just has a really good chew factor. And it bulks up those flies without making them too heavy. And a wet mop that's in the air is a lot more uh, aerodynamic than a lot of other materials and a lot of natural materials. So that's my preference for using mops. Again, for, for fishing them as nymphs for trout, I've done it. I've caught fish. It's just it's not my favorite way to nymph. Uh, I don't like making complicated nymph rigs to compensate for uh, flies that don't sink quickly. So that's just me, maybe, again, maybe me being lazy. Now, there are some other flies that maybe aren't as popular that I wanted to touch on quickly. One is the honeybug. Now, if you're in Pennsylvania, you know about the honeybug. And all the honeybug is is light-colored dubbing or yarn on a hook. Now, I don't know the story, so I haven't Googled it. Maybe that's lazy uh, podcasting, but I just figured I would throw that out there for somebody to inform me. But you know what the honeybug looks like? The honeybug looks like bread. And so as a teenager, I found out I could fish the bread hatch. There's a couple of streams that I had fished that were close to public parks, or there's bridges over them, and if you're fishing downstream and somebody's feeding the ducks, you reel in, you snip off, you tie on that honey bug and you make sure that there's no water in it and you cast it and it has that same look as a little uh, soggy breadcrumb that's kind of sitting just in the surface film and then as it takes on a little bit of water it starts to drop and big fish, small fish, all the fish go crazy for it. But I'm sure under normal circumstances the thing imitates maybe a really pale crest bug, uh, maybe uh, a, a very, very um, fat caddis larva i don't know but it works opportunistic along those same lines i think most fish i've caught on egg flies have nothing to do with them eating eggs i'm not fishing below spawning rainbows i'm not fishing below uh spawning suckers and things like that i'm fishing in areas where i want to put a very very bright fly in front of fish that i want to get their attention so I, I catch a lot of fish on egg flies. I think that very, very small, um, bright. So I use lots of reds and oranges. Uh, I use greens. I will use um, the, like a pale white with a blood dot on it. I think they're really, really good flies, all-purpose flies. They're, again, almost like attractor nymphs. But then there's another situation where if, if you are fishing in an area that isn't super pristine, where egg flies really kill, and that is if there's anywhere where people are fishing power bait. So this might not be your idea of fun fishing, or you might say, you know what, I just want to catch some trout. And again, as a young man, I fished a, a river, a river um, small stream, I should say, that was below a pond, and the river or the stream was catch and release fly fishing only. The pond was all things go. Everybody was trying to catch their limit as much as they could, but there's enough anglers that the fish got wary, so they, they were in that pond year-round. Well, people up in that pond would use all manner of bait. They would use corn, and they would use um, worms, and they would use power bait. And those fish, they got used to seeing power bait, and they got used to eating power bait that wasn't on hooks because as somebody cast, it fell off, or it was just you know floating all over the place. And the fish that were in the river below the pond were used to seeing power bait. They used to see it swimming by them in the, in the I guess power bait doesn't swim, uh, drifting by them, um, coming through the spillway. And so without fail, you know, if that fish 
had seen power bait before you drop that weighted uh egg fly in there and that thing will turn its head and i had so many fish that would attack so aggressively because they were looking for you know garlic and cheese flavored whatever so egg flies yeah i mean it's yarn tied real tight on a hook and snipped up to look like a round little ball nothing traditional or fancy about it but it works and it works in situations that aren't as trashy as the one that i just described one last fly and and this one actually it it's i really hesitate to call it trashy because uh, they have a very very um fond spot in my heart and uh that's because they they take a lot of work to actually put together and i first encountered these probably about 25 20 years ago um, at a fly shop uh, same fly shop i worked at and they are little painted balsa bodied terrestrials so it's balsa wood glued to a hook shank and then painted to look like an inchworm or a bumblebee or an ant or something like that so it is a lure there is nothing fly about it except for the size and what it's meant to imitate but they float like corks because they effectively are corks it is a it is a trout popper you just don't pull the thing through the water and they were great little flies they weren't super durable but as long as you weren't catching a ton of fish right away or you weren't knocking them against rocks or uh, anything like that they really, really produced. And so you can achieve the exact same thing if you tie by using cork or foam. Uh, cork and foam, yeah, I mean, within the bass game, these things were quote-unquote traditional. But for trout, not a traditional material. But spinning deer hair is a skill that I just haven't spent enough time to feel comfortable with. And I also don't like the mess a lot. So if I'm trying to make a quick and dirty little dry fly attractor, I'll use foam. Uh, I'll use a little bit of cork that I slide up through the uh, the hook and uh, and glue on there with some uh, with some UV epoxy, and it makes that fly float so well. You can put a little bit of foam or a little cork in the middle of the fly, and then tie a, a, a tail, a body, and a wing kind of on top of it and around it. Really, really works. Kind of dirty, kind of cheap, but. At the end of the day, if you were just going to use some sort of synthetic body material, it's not that much of a leap. So I would say that there is a greater difference between synthetic materials meant to imitate natural materials than there is between synthetic materials and kind of um, out there, newfangled, uh, fad tying materials. Does that make sense? So one more time, that, that the traditional animal products have less in common with the synthetic versions of those products than do, say, cork or rubber or foam or things like that. Because I think the, the issue isn't necessarily what it looks like, it's what it actually is. And so if you're, you're going for uh, traditional, then go traditional. If you are up for something else, then be okay with other things. And again, don't judge one man or one woman based upon the flies that they use. Uh, if we all are using fur or rubber or you know some weird nylon hybrid of the two and we are taking care of the resource and we're being kind to each other and that's what matters so thoughts have i uh, been a heretic for the last 21 and a half minutes have i spoken your love language by talking about squirmy wormies if that's the case you're about to get really excited but 
let me know what you think. Matthew at castingacross.com. Uh, hopefully a couple of his little anecdotes have given you a few ideas about how you can employ not just kind of weird and trashy patterns, but your normal traditional patterns in some circumstances that you may you may encounter. I mean, think about the patterns that I mentioned. A squirmy worm, you can fish a San Juan worm in a very, very similar way. You just have to set the hook a little bit faster. Mop flies, yeah, you can do almost the same thing with chenille, or you can weave a body out of some material and spend a lot of time and ac- accomplish the same thing. Uh, the, the, the honey bug and the, and the little foam popper. I mean, if you can spin deer hair, you can do anything you can do with, uh, with, with balsa or foam or cork. You just, you're, you're more constrained to, to your hook shank, but you can accomplish all of the, the same things. It just takes a little more work, but for a lot of people, and, and I can appreciate this because I kind of lean this way. Uh, that's part of the fun. A little bit more work is, is part of the fun. This week on castingacross.com, the first article was called The Mayfly Project's One Fly Event. So this is a, an organization that I don't think I'm alone in saying is doing some spectacular work these days. The Mayfly Project, if you don't know, they work with kids in foster care to get them out on the water, spend some time with a positive adult role model, and they use fly fishing and environmental education as a conduit for just building up these kids' um, self-esteem and their uh, social skills, and also they work on uh, on getting them into into forever homes. So they have a one fly event, which is effectively an opportunity for you to support the Mayfly Project. You buy a fly, and when you buy a fly you have an opportunity to win a lot of great prizes. Uh, So this is being recorded on the 9th of September that goes through the end of October and of 2020. And there are stand-up paddle boards and there are able reels. There is a couple of fly rods, one of my favorite kids' books, uh, some custom uh, painted shoes, and a, a rod rack for all of your rods on top of your car. So awesome awesome organization great little uh, program support them support the folks that have donated to them check it out on the mayfly projects one fly event then wednesday was called trout and feather september so every month i contribute to trout and feather an awesome uh, youtube channel first and foremost and then website that kind of goes with it and uh so i wrote an article about learning from your ancient angling ancestors uh basically the the mindset that a quote-unquote primitive angler would have had going to a stream or river is the same kind of attitude that you ought to have which i'll boil it down to this confidence and you should have that but what i also do and as i've been alluding to throughout the entire podcast in this uh, article is i have embedded on my site two of tim's uh, tying videos one is a new squirmy wormy so again this might make you squeal with joy or it might make you roll your eyes in anguish but uh, this is a really cool squirmy wormy that is going to not give you fits because you don't have to work with the worm material at all. You tie a fly and then you insert the worm material. So it is on one end of the spectrum of what can be considered a fly. I will say that, but it, it, it works. It's a great little fly. The other one's called the Utah Killer Bug. So simple of a pattern. And it's just a deadly style pattern. I've tied something similar to this for for a long time. I'm interested in trying this fly with the material that is used on the Utah Killer Bug. 
This week's recommendation on the podcast is another podcast, not just another podcast, but another podcast's specific episode. So I want to recommend that you go listen to Rob Snow White's Fly Fishing Consultant's recent interview with Ryan Goldsbury of Risen Fly Fishing. So these are two guys that I've known for quite a while, Rob for a really long time and Ryan for going on um, seven years now, I think. No, not, not that long, maybe five or six years. But... Uh, Ryan runs Risen Fly Fishing. I've talked about them. I've recommended a lot of their products. I think they are one of the best bangs for your buck when you're getting into fly fishing. Their target species kits are a great way for you to not only start fishing, but all expand into a new kind of fly fishing. Um, their their uh, Genesis Rod Series is the rod that I've kind of dubbed the best small stream fly rod for under $100. Their 7.5 foot 3 weight is a great little fly rod. So Rob, who does a great job of interviewing, interviews Ryan, talks about the company, uh, Ryan's story, and about some of their products and about some of their, their plans for the future. So it's a really good listen. Very, very different than you know me talking for 25 minutes. But I definitely suggest that you go check that out. So uh, the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, he's one of the top ones um, uh, out there. So you put Fly Fishing Podcast and he's going to pop up. I'm down there a couple, but uh, he's, he's at the top. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.